When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the Artificial Intelligence Podcast with your host, Dr. Tony Huang. Today, I'm with a special guest, Abdullah. Can you give an intro about yourself? Hi, Tony. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. My name is Abdullah Kambas. I'm an assistant professor at the Department of Information Science and Technology, University at Albany, SUNY. I worked as a software engineer. Oh, cool. And I worked as data scientist for Bayer Pharmaceutical. Gotcha. So what made you switch over to academia from industry? What was the like motivation for it? Did you like miss research or did you want to move away from industry because it's such more high pace? What was the the rationale that switched industry. over to academia? Yep. Thanks for the question. Industry, as you mentioned, is really high speed, high pace. Things are moving so fast. On the flip side, academia, a bit more slow pace, but you're more focused on research and rather than creating a product that is directly going to the end users, you're more in the realm that you can plug and play different things. And every day there's a new challenge. You knock every door and most of those doors are not opening and you try some other approaches. That is more interesting to me. So I came back to academia because of that. Gotcha. And when you were out in industry, did you see any cool trends back in the day? Were there any trends that really stuck? Or if there weren't any trends, did you see any trends when you first joined academia? Let me give you a bit brief background of mine. So that before answering your question, I was in academia at Indiana University. I was an assistant professor there. Then I decided to go back to industry to just have the feeling what's happening there. This was before, before the COVID hit. So things were really developing. There were no large language models, these new crazy stuff happening. There were talks back then, but nothing was moving so fast as well. What we were doing is multivariate analysis, data analysis, looking into production lines and processes, how the medicines are being created, what are the purities affected by the certain assembly lines, malfunctions, and so on and so forth. What I can tell is that industry is doing some really phenomenal work, but the focus is so much into production where you have to pay attention to quality heavily, and that requires a lot of time and dedication for you. In the research, that is a little bit different because you have your own flexibility of looking into multiple angles and you can see and choose, okay, this is an interesting research area that I would like to spend time. Having said that, I really enjoy the time at industry as well because you are working with really intelligent people you are hanging out day to day. You can see, you can feel that they are bringing some interesting values, that the problems have to be solved. And for the next morning, for the meeting, after the next 
day, you are looking into different problem sets, but they're all focused into production again. So it was a phenomenal experience for me. Very cool. And so I have a question. Right now, you're focused heavily on AI, right? Yes. What made you like switch over to AI or or did you actually do AI since the very beginning? Tony, from the very beginning, from my master's level, I did software engineering. I did computer networks, wireless sensor networks. So AI was part of my life back then as well, but not as heavily as it is right now. In my PhD period, I looked into network measurements, complex networks problems, particularly the internet traffic data as a big data analysis was part of my PhD studies. Now, looking at the data is getting larger and larger, AI models and machine learning is always there. You can look into the problem as over-the-counter machine learning problems, right? You have a certain problem, you're trying to solve it, and there are certain algorithms already proven to be efficient in certain those problems that you're tackling with. And then you also have a new set of data coming and that requires new models, design new algorithms, maybe tweaked in a way to understand the data that you're curating, collecting. So that's, that is part of my life these days. Looking, bringing my experience from network science, complex networks, doing network analysis rather than rows and columns of data in an Excel sheet or in a database, right, uh, in an SQL, we are more interested in converting the data into nodes and edges, doing some predictions, trying to understand nature of the data from the graph point of view. Gotcha. So did you discover anything cool? What was like some groundbreaking stuff that you've noticed? What we are doing these days, I have a lab here at UAL, uh, Albany. It's called AI and Complex Networks Lab. My students, I have six PhD students, four master's students and a couple undergraduate students looking into different problems, different aspects of the problems in AI-enabled realm. So this lab is created in a sense that we would like to be close to the application domain so that AI knowledge sometimes is so heavy, so high that the people in the industry, let's, I'll give you a very simple example. In, for example, law, judicial system, uh, legal system that lawyers, the courtroom, the judges and the jury in the uh, courtrooms, they come from different backgrounds and they need an understanding, an explanation in some sense of how the AI systems work, how these systems could help them speed their work in providing decision support mechanisms. Two of my students are looking into that realm. We recently looked into using large language models to curate the data that could be used for augmented uh, data curation in the knowledge graph. Now, when you're looking into court cases, there are so much information coming and most of them are either in PDF form or image form that has to be processed by using some natural language techniques, processing techniques. Now, at the end of the day, you need to take that unstructured data, find a way to structure it. And then from there, you can go to either a web application, mobile application, whichever medium you're planning to provide a service to your clients, right? But that back end has to be designed in a way that will be able to understand all that unstructured data. That is one of the work my research group is doing these days. Another work we are looking for example is AI bias. It's a buzzword that everyone is talking about, AI bias. Uh, what we did, we laid the foundation in every single aspect of 
what is an AI-enabled system? What are the bits and pieces possibly you could use more like a Lego when you're building a large robot? What are the every single individual pieces that could contribute to a biased system? Does it make sense? We created a resume and network of these components where AI could be introduced by us. And then we are looking into control theory in this particular scenario. So, for example, if you're working for hospital healthcare system, your AI enabled system might have different fingerprints in terms of uh, bias compared to a person who's working in the legal field. That makes sense because the systems are designed differently, the goals are different, the target audience is different, the knowledge in one end is different than the other end. It is at the end of the day, it is an end-to-end -end development. Building, looking to data collection process, how the data is collected from the sensors, from the surveys, and then looking into design aspects, you need data scientists on the table, you, you need statistic statistician on the table, you need enterprise level decision makers on the table, apparently there are enterprise goals that we need to fulfill, right? And then at the end of the day, there's a human computer interaction. People will be using your models, your web interface, mobile interface to interact with that system. It is, it's an end-to-end development in that particular story. You need to be careful, okay, what are the possible factors that I'm introducing bias? Can we use control theory? Let's say you build your version one, right? AI-enabled system version one. You deploy it you start sensing that it's not working fine. That's pretty much what we do these days as well. Then when you have retrospectively, what are the points that you are introducing some data or possible biases? Control theory could help you, okay, this is a component that I might tweak a little bit. What kind of tweaks possible in that particular item? Doing the changes, looking forward again, more like the neural networks architecture, run the simulations again, run the tests again, to see, did you tweak the model so that it is less biased or more biased? An approach we are doing. We are looking into crisis management cases using AI. We are looking, satellite imagery, for example, is a big problem, and particularly buyout, buyout scenarios. So federal government, I'll give you another example here. Federal government reserves funds for flooded zones. When the hurricane hits a certain state, Basically, federal, federal government says that here is X billion dollars for the recovery. States take the initiative and they, they start working with you to figure out, buy your land, provide you new housing, and so on and so forth. Apparently, there are a certain number of over, over 60,000 addresses we know of that was purchased by the government, knowing that those are already flooded. There is a possibility that those lands could be flooded again. And we also have to make sure that those lands purchased with this funding is not used for any uh, residential or job-related, business-related buildings or facilities. It has to be returned to recreational space or parking or whatever. When the problem scale grows, AI makes so much sense that you, by using the image classification segmentation techniques, building the graph of where are these flood zones, right? Can we create a network of these flood zones? Can we connect them to each other? Are they adjacent to each other or separate from each other? And looking into possibly where else, God forbid, if another hurricane hits, right? Another flooding happens. Where are the possible risky areas? Can we predict it upfront? 
are kind of the research we are doing these days. This data set that you collected, when you do the analysis on it and it comes back with, say, like a false positive, like how do you deal with that? For instance, what you're saying, like with the flood zones, what if it comes back false positive? Is there a way to mitigate that or do you usually have someone that goes through and reviews it manually? Oh, that's a great question, Tony. And my personal observation is that when the scale of the problem grows and you really start touching the human lives, it applies to legal cases as well. No, decision cannot be left to computers to say A or B or zero or one. Uh, that by, It's not as binary as we see it, the computer system. So for that reason, any of these research that I, I listed, we have experts on the table. Now, I have collaborators from emergency management and Homeland Security Department, for example, for the satellite imagery, flood zone detection classification problem. What we did in our preliminary work, we crafted a list of 20 flood zones and AI tagged them saying that there's a grass I see, there's a playground I see, or, the, or there's a construction I see. Now, we showed them these fields. What we know from the uh, previous attempts is that uh, they were literally sending agents to the field to see, okay, this is a flood zone, previously flooded zone. Now it is being used for a playground, right? That takes so much time. Imagine sending agents, field agents, visiting these sites over 60,000. They were only able to process over 250 or so in a year. AI is able to complete the task in three hours. But when it comes down to, okay, is it really accurate? There we need the domain expertise. So we show them the proofs, we show them what we have, and they provide us feedback. We fine tune our models saying that, okay, let's change some of these parameters. Maybe the number of classes we are trying to identify in that particular problem was 19, looking into cars, looking into roads, looking into trees, grass area, or field, which production is going on. For example, it's a wheat land anymore, wheat land. So having that feedback, we went back and we tweaked our model. That's how we roll. Gotcha. And so I'm curious as to whether you've heard the the cash interview or not, the VP of research at UAlbany. Yes. So I had him on the show a couple of shows back. And one of the interesting things that he said was that Albany now is doing this program called AI Plus, which I think is very yep. smart. Basically, it's you obviously know this, but basically it's you're putting an AI expert into every single major so that moving forward, that every student that goes through UAlbany, regardless of the major is going to have some type of experience with AI, which right now out in industry, it's like the biggest, hottest thing. And if you have, if you haven't experienced how to use generative AI or like touch like something like chat GBT, you're going to be falling way behind in, in comparison with everybody else. So what's your thought on like this AI plus program that's coming out and are you guys doing it as well? Can you give me some insight on what your point of view is? Yes, of course. AI Plus initiative is a crazy idea. Uh, it is becoming a reality these days. I am part of the faculty at the initiative. New York State reserved some really good funding for this opportunity, and UAlbany take the lead. We recruited, I was joined earlier than this recruit, but they uh, recruited 26 faculty last summer, and some of the departments are still looking for new faculty to add to their uh, lines. The goal is to put AI pretty much into every field. One of my tasks for this semester is actually for the Department of Information Science and Technology. We are given the task to create an introductory AI course that is called Concepts of AI. That can be taken by any student, regardless of their 
coding background, their technical background, let's bring down the knowledge to zero. Imagine this way, students coming to your class, learning about AI, learning about ethics. They don't need to touch the coding, but they have the bare minimum of understanding what is AI. The future is shaped by AI. The algorithms models are coming more popular. That we are carrying AI models in our pockets in the last almost 20 years, right? But no one has realized the capacity. We had Siri, we had, we had Alexa. We were asking some silly questions until this point. Now it is creating content. It has some way of reasoning that can understand your input and provide you really valuable outputs and can make your life much easier in many directions. I'm so proud to be a part of AI initiative. Colleagues that we have here, they're doing phenomenal work. As you mentioned that we have AI faculty in education department, AI faculty in public uh, health department. We have AI faculty in business department, AI faculty, AI related business research is being done, for example, AI related public health research is being done in another area. From our point of view, I'm one of those technical individuals. I'm doing AI development and measurement aspects of AI from information science and technology point of view. Having this group of people, AI minded, future is AI in many aspects. We can see that it's not so hard to Imagine what will happen in the next 10 years, looking at the VR headsets, they're going to down to this scale that we are able to interact with them. Apparently they're connected to some cloud servers. Your data is stored in somewhere that you need to have their understanding of what is the data, what is privacy, what is the database, right? And all these things considered, we are moving to a direction with AI plus initiative is leading the flag. And I'm so happy to be part of it. So what's like the big hot thing that's come up like past AI plus is, are you guys going to invest in more AI initiatives? Is there like, I, I think I read that you guys had like a giant IBM deal where obviously you can speak of this, but just briefly reading through it, it looks like you guys have this partnership where they're building out a, a compute like center there. Can you dive a little bit more into that? Sure. Sure. IBM and you Albany got into an agreement about a couple months back. And these days they're building a $20 million investment of IBM's own AI machine learning computing power here. That will give us tremendous lift in terms of computational power, knowing what is happening with large language models. You need X amount of CPUs and TPUs and things are getting really crazy, not only in the software realm, but in the hardware computation realm as well. So, Forget about talking quantum computing. That's another discussion I guess we, we might have. Uh, things, things are aligning nicely in a way that future is bright for us, for the AI researchers. We can really go above and beyond where AI could be enabled, how can make things, how we can make things a bit more smooth and easy for people to understand the AI and get them on a boat that when they are using AI-enabled systems, they're also aware of many aspects of AI. Not, you don't need to know everything about it, but if you're driving a car, let me give you this analogy. If you're driving an autonomous vehicle, you should at least understand how the autonomy works. What are the sensors, how they're built, why that machine is able to drive itself from point A to point B, right? That requires bare minimum of understanding of driving a car. And that's the whole motivation here. 
So there are really good directions AI plus initi initiative is taking these days. For example, we are looking in ways, AI initiative is looking in ways that if you have an AI related problem, here's the funding for you for a one year X dollar amount. So that's a discussion going on very soon. They will be announcing that. So faculty who has an idea, who would like to work on AI related uh, research, having a hard time finding the seed fund will have the support by the AI initiative. We are looking into mental health problems using uh, how AI could benefit in mental health problems. Uh, we are looking into how AI enabled research could benefit in humanities research and ethical issues, the accessibility needs and the equity problems. AI could help solve some of these problems, at least provide uh, positive constructive feedback, right? We are looking into AI in the educational realm, how AI could be incorporated into school districts. Thinking about when you live in a big city, the school districts around you are resourceful. They have some good funding. They have good student body. The fundraising kind of brings, brings some support as well. Imagine going to a school in a school district that you have only two instructors, only five computers, right? Up in New York state, for example, there are school districts that they are so small, there are only 50, 60 students. That's the school district, right? Limited resources, limiting, limited computational power, sometimes even limited network, right? Looking into those problems, how AI enabled system could create equity that students in those areas have fair amount, or not equal, if it is not equal, almost fair amount of resources and the content and knowledge back in their back there, they're getting enough support. There, there are other in, uh, initiative focuses coming along. So I would, I would need to go back and look into directories. So these are the things that I'm aware of. I'm part of. Gotcha. Yeah. That sounds really exciting. Back when I went to school there, we didn't have anything like that. In fact, like it was interesting. My experience there, I was actually one of the first people to put IOT sensors into scientific huh. experiments there. And what was interesting was that like a lot of my like fellow grads at the time I was going through a PhD program, but they were like, why don't you just do it regularly? Or like, why are you adding all these like sensors in there? And you know, thinking back now, that was like the precursor of like industry IOT, like in, in that movement. And I, back then I was on the cutting edge of doing that type of initiative and, and research. And so I'd say it, it might sound weird at first when you're trying to implement all these like new texts into what you're doing, but in the end, like Typically, I've seen a lot of people like accelerate way past their peers. And so I, in my opinion, I think this is the right bet to, to place on, to be, to place your bets on solely because I've seen all of, I've seen a lot of companies out in the industry implement AI into basically everything and they've, they've accelerated past every other company. So in, in my opinion, if you don't have AI integrated into your curriculum at uh, high, in the higher education realm, I think you're going to fall behind. So this is really great to, to see that you Albany is doing that. And then speaking of like research, like can you give me some like hints on the next hot thing that you're building. What's the next hot thing that Abdul's Abdullah's building right now? I would like to add one thing, what you just said, Tony, having AI to the introductory level at college, in my opinion, is not enough. What we should really consider think, uh, doing a change is Take the AI content, the data content, not AI concept might be so big, 
cloudy, uh, take the data concept to kindergarten now. If you have, I have two daughters, I've observed in first hand what my daughter was doing at school at kindergarten ages. You know, they already deal with the data. Let's say you have different colored items, separate them by color. You have different shaped items, separate them by shape, right? They're literally playing with the data in that particular age, four, five, six years old, right? That is the time we should start thinking about what is the data, how you can do cl classification, which is already being done, just put a bit more structured frame related to AI around it. I think that's the level we should push this anymore because you and I, we grew up in a nature that we had friends in the street. We could just walk out, run around, chase a ball, right? These kids, our children are growing with iPad in their hand. Right? Their phones, mobile devices connected. Now, looking into VR technologies, things will get even crazy in the future. That's one of the comments just I would like to add. What's happening in Abdullah's world these days in terms of research? We are looking into visualization algorithms using AI techniques. We already have seen LLMs are doing really crazy stuff, fine-tuning LLM for problem A, problem B. That is pretty handy. That is pretty helpful. But when it comes down to analyzing the data, understanding the insights, most of the time, it is much easier to show a picture rather than giving straight talk of 15, 20 minutes, right? Uh, the graphics help a lot, uh, but creating graphics is specialty. Not everyone is able to create really effective graphics, right? And looking into vision models, how generative vision models are capable to create really amazing artifacts. What we are looking at these days is, let's say you have a particular data set in hand, but you don't know how to understand it or how to create graphics. You don't have Excel skills in where basic. Provide that particular data set to a language model, or you don't need to call it language model, a foundational model. I call it event models pretty much. Let me explain my thinking process. When you're doing a software development, most of the time you think about triggering an event, right? Listeners, you deploy listeners in your software algorithm. When the user clicks on a button, something happens. An event triggers an action and apparently there is a corresponding algorithm does something, right? Having that same nature, you have certain data, you provide that data as a feed, it creates you visuals that you can literally print them out, take it to your meeting room and present them to your colleagues. That's what I want to do. And that's what we are working on these days. Very cool. And so if, if I was an LL researcher that really wanted to team up with you, what's the best way to contact you? The best way to contact me is email. My uh, UAlbany email, I'm trying to respond my emails every six hours or so. That would be the best. We have we have office, we have the building here, eTech at UAlbany campus at Albany, New York. It's open, my lab is always open. We are, we, we are waiting, expecting guests from all around. Please, if you would like to come and touch, if you would like to see what's happening at AI lab, feel free to reach me. So if you're like a student, and you're in college, right? Let's not say like you all may, but just in college in general. Mm -hmm. And you didn't have this AI plus program to help you out. What, like, how would you prep up to get ready for AI? Would you just look at some YouTube videos or I don't know, Google around? Students really don't know where to go. Uh, yes. Understood. Understood, Tony. My, my answer to this question is it's all about curiosity. You know, 
I tell my daughter as well, you might be interested in one thing that maybe that interest is not always there, but as long as you have that interest active, you should seek ways to learn more, understand more that particular phenomenon, right? If you're interested in AI, if you're interested in cybersecurity, if you're interested in robotics, doesn't matter really. First, first stop for a moment and say, where can I find related information, right? Do simple critical thinking, okay. I'm Abdullah, I'm a guy sitting in my office thinking about what will be my next move. So there are people, experts around you, there are people that you can reach, there are people you cannot reach, but there's a resource called Google in front of you and there are some generator models. Start asking questions. How can I learn simple AI content? What is statistical learning? What is machine learning? Most of the time people get confused by, oh, there's AI, there's machine learning. What is the difference between those? When you start shooting questions, then you will start getting answers and it will trigger more questions and don't feel shy. Don't feel scared of asking questions. Be courageous, go ahead. Be proactive about asking questions because that will take you to your next step. It is more like the state vector machines, Tony. Every time your state changes, with every question your state changes, you are not the same person after shooting a question because you have a bit more knowledge. Does it make sense? And I think we need to promote this for our new generations. Okay, feel free to ask questions. Feel free to come out because more you sit quiet, more you will become separated from the society. We don't want that to happen. You need to be part of the conversation. You need to be part of AI community one way or another. You don't need to be the software coder. You could be the project manager. You could be the sales marketing person related to an AI enabled product. Does it make sense? So please. Come out. And then I'd like to get your point of view on like the future of research and AI, and also maybe your point of view on higher education and AI. To, to my understanding, in the research field, everyone's using it. There, and then, but, but then as a researcher, you have to publish your, your, your findings. And I've noticed that a couple of like publications have banned like AI generated like research papers. And mm -hmm. so I, I was wondering, like, what's your take on there's a, a negative movement into in this research field where like they're preventing people from using Gen AI to build out like a research paper for publication. And then there's also people that are using it right now to just further their, their research. There's like a, it's butting heads with each other, your point of view on that. And then in, in the future, like, where do you think AI is headed towards in like higher education? Tony, I'm a big advocate of Human, human should be part of the loop, no matter what system you're building. And the creativity is human's attribute. It cannot be part of computer's attribute. Computers only operate with the data that they have seen before, the patterns they can recognize from previous instances. I was reviewing one of my PhD students shared a video with me the other day. Basically what the individual did, wrote some prompts, created some images from one AI tool, took the images to another AI tool to create a rendering so it became a video. Then following those prompts, also used another AI tool creating the wrap associated to that particular image set. And then they ended up creating a two, three minutes of a video clip, music clip, right? Computers will always be there to do these kind of stuff, but there's always an operator. There's always someone who's on the steering wheel controlling left or right. So I think we need to underline that it is always us. 
we need to we need to be a part of the system either in the use either in development either in investment part of it in the decision making part of it it is end-to-end -end system development uh, from where where this can go there are good developments on the other side as well for example there are complaints about an AI tool could use your intellectual property. You're an artist, you created a music or you created a nice image. You took a nice photo of something, right? AI can use it. You know, there are two algorithms. If I recall their name correctly, one was Glaze, other one was Nightshade, for example. These two are altering the metadata of the image. So if you decide to use Abdullah's image and I'm using Nightshade to protect my uh, intellectual property, Apparently, your AI model becomes poisoned because the tool that I use is poisoning my metadata. The moment you start using it, it is affecting your AI model, right? Research is going on in both realms. You know, one side is leading the direction of how more intensive, how more rigorously these models can provide more content. It can be more helpful. On the other side, concerns like ethics, the privacy issues, intellectual property, Research is going on that side as well. Somehow these have to align. It seems like creation of these tools is expanding while the other side's voice is not being heard much. But there's, there are things happening in that realm as well. The thing is maybe from the investor point of view, what we could say, hey, you know what? While we are investing a lot on creating new tools and technologies, let's invest exactly the same, maybe even more amount of money to other side as well. So industry has so much money to put on A or B, right? Academia, unfortunately, doesn't have much uh, flexibility in terms of funding. What we do is we seek for funding. It comes for three, four years. We try to finish the project. You know, we are at the verge that industry is going way faster than academia comes. It was never the case, in my opinion, until this point. You know, Going to just Twitter every three hours, you can see, oh, there's a new red, there's a new LLM fine-tuned model, or there's a mathematical model. Now LLMs understand geomet geometry as well. So somehow we need to balance this. That makes sense. And that is there. Uh, I'm not saying that it's not happening. Maybe we should put more effort on balancing things in terms of, okay, how we can pr protect intellectual property, how we can rail guard around those paths that, okay, here's the tool you can use, here are the stuff you're allowed to use, and somehow maybe policing mechanism could be incorporated into that as well. So having said that, I would like to underline an interesting point. We are looking into large language models, particularly ChatGBT is so popular, so famous, right? Same equivalent of it as Copilot, Microsoft is deploying to the enterprises these days. Google announced Gemini the other day, it officially became a thing, and you can purchase and use it. These are large models, and companies, these enterprises are spending billions of dollars on those infrastructures. There are tiny models, very efficient, very accurate. They can produce really valuable input as well. They're open source, right? I'll name just one of them. Falcon is one of them, for example, is an, a large language model. There's another one is Mistral. The French uh, startup is building this. Uh, they're much smaller in terms of parameters, but they're, they're really mighty. And imagine companies using those tiny models because they're not able to invest in large computing power, right? Using those for their own misconduct, whatever they're intended to do. That is more scary because 
when it is open source regulations, the rules and safeguarding the content and the individuals using those technologies is a bit more difficult. Right? That's my trajectory now. What can be done for those smaller but mighty models? Because that is that's an area that I, I sense that can be created for God forbid for terrorist attacks, for harming the society. So many crazy things can happen. We're looking into hallucination is a thing for large language models. Models being designed for just lying. And people rely on those models, right? So those are the things we should think heavily, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. The so in terms of hallucination, usually hallucination happens with like world models, like large monolithic models, because there's too much, there's so much yeah. info. That's the whole reason why everyone wants to do small language models or micro models is because it has a very narrow scope. So like the hallucinations disappear be, because of that. It's like comparing like a jack of all trades versus like a SME in like a, in the industry vertical, right? Like you can ask both of them like a very high level question they'll get, right? But then you, the moment you start asking a very specific like question, uh, the SME is going to win. And then the, the jack of all trades is going to start hallucinating from like different verticals. So that that's, that's like my take on that. And then it's interesting that you said Mistro because I actually love Mistro. They have one of the best models out right now. Yes. Like the Mistro 8X7B is yes. really good. There's the Mixro, which the MIX, that is very good, the e model. So we, in, in my personal life, like I use the Mistro and Mixro when I deploy it out. It, in my opinion, I think once you get over your honeymoon phase with OpenAI's ChatGPT and the GPT yep. engine, you start moving on to more and more exotic and more fun, small language models that are in the open source community. And and so like OpenAI is like your gateway drug to language models in general, because it's so easy to use. But yeah, that's like my take on like language models right now. And furthermore, I, I think there's going to be a lot more, more uh, regulations that are going to happen. Uh, in, in that field. All of the stuff that we're seeing right now is going to get more and more locked down. For instance, uh, they're trying to reduce the uh, abuse of language models for like bioweapon manufacturing or yep. some type of like cybersecurity attack against a nation. So there, there's legislations in, in, in place to prevent language models from outputting answers to, to these type of questions. And so I'm very curious on where that's going to head towards how lockdown that's going to be. Obviously, we want to lock it down so that it doesn't harm society, but we don't want to lock it down so much that it stifles like innovation. Yeah. And that's my two cents on, on regulating LMs. It's hot, very hot topic right now. I think, I think there's going to be years and years worth of litigation that's going to happen. I don't know if you follow the news, but there's like a, a ton of lawsuits occurring. OpenAI is getting sued. Stable Diffusion is getting sued. Like all these big like world models are getting sued because they're obviously they have to scrape all of the content in order to make everything work. And that's how language models work. And, and yeah, you know, on industry, that's like a big hot topic. Are you seeing that where yeah. you're at right now in the research phase? Where Are there like lawsuits happening also in, in the research realm? It's not much a thing in research academia realm, Tony, because most of the work we do go with public data sets, available data sets, and the algorithms are, depends on the problem you're dealing with, sometimes over the counter, sometimes crafted for the problem that you're tackling at that particular moment, but we don't see that much. What I can tell is there is a way to counter this problem. Uh, you mentioned cybersecurity and deploying IoT devices in your PhD studies. One of the problems my PhD, one of my PhD students is tackling these days is when you say cybersecurity, when you say IP addresses, when you say someone is attacking your network, 
So if you're a tech person, if you have a little bit of background in computer science or related field, you would understand what IP address is. But imagine a lady, age of 65, 70, carrying one of these smart watches around, right? That's it. You know, that's an IoT device, part of their life, and it helps. God forbid if they fall, it's, it will call 911. There are some fancy features coming with those. But they don't have an understanding of cybersecurity. So we are buying these smart speakers to our households. We are interacting with them, but we don't know how frequently they're sending packages left and right. For that, for example, what we are doing is using large language models. We looked into all Llama versions, also including Mixtral, Mistral, and Mixtral, 8 billion, 8 times 7 billion, sorry. So what we are trying to build is a adapter that is able to understand cybersecurity threats, your network flow, what is happening in your household, and also is conversational. So it will tell you, you know what, Abdullah, you have this device in your network. It is usually talking three times a day to their home server, but today it is talking 100 times. Maybe there's something happening in that device. Does it make sense? So it gives some sort of warning to the user who's not able to understand cybersecurity, who doesn't know IP addresses, all the content related to cybersecurity, is able to understand something is happening now, right? Now, uh, that's part of the education. You need to provide mediums. You need to open the gates that they are able to see things. They are able to comprehend, okay, there's something I need to do. This, this is not right. So that's why I was telling that we need to bring the understanding of data to kindergarten level. We need to bring the understanding of machine learning to elementary level, how a kid learns. Basically, you, you tell your daughter, your kid, you know what, this is an oven, it's hot, you should not touch. So until kid touches that oven, your information and instruction doesn't make sense, right? But when they touch, they figure out, yes, that is something that I should not touch again. So it is a learning process, and learning theory is a thing that we, we are already using it. Uh, teachers are using them. We need to underline that better, okay? There are certain ways people learn, and during that process of learning, where we can embed the AI knowledge, machine learning knowledge, where we can add privacy knowledge, where we can add cybersecurity knowledge, so that the education starts much earlier than we, we currently have them in the plan. Does it make sense? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense to me. And yeah. so what's your take on, so like you're in Albany, New York right now, which is like right next to the, the political capital of New York. Yes. So what's your take on like the executive order that was passed by Joe Biden, President Joe Biden, in regards to AI? And then there's a big like push in terms of legislation in the state of New York to regulate AI as well as to push AI across the different verticals. What's your point of view? Not enough, but yes. <laughs> I think that's a great step towards creating safety and security, raising awareness. Of course, that's an executive order that has to find a way of implementation and touching the nerves and vessels of society, right? That's the actual challenge. Now, the federal government following the executive order is already doing their work. We are in conversation with some of them. They are creating fundings, creating research directions, and some of those research directions are actually application-oriented. So here's a problem how you can solve it. Here's ethical problem, how you can solve it. Here's educational problem, how you can solve it. So I think we are on the right track, right direction. So it all comes down to logistics at this point, I believe, how, how things can be organized, how things can move faster. No, we don't want to 
kill ourselves in between the fly of the paperwork and the bureaucracy. Sometimes think of it this way, you're running your own startup. No, in order to succeed in a startup, you need to sometimes truncate a lot, right? You need to put a pause on certain developments and you need to push a certain aspect of your startup problem so that your startup comes to the point that it is fruitful. You deploy your first runnable prototype. Uh, that is the same thing. I believe the idea is there, the executive order is there, and it is covering the many aspects nicely. Now, when it comes down to implementation and deployment, that's where we could collaborate and we could, we could work efficiently. It is coming together and I'm looking forward to see actually how it will touch the ground. Thank you so much for being on the show. And until next time, stay curious.